Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Bill. And I'm Mikkel. And we are here today with Anthony Magnabosco. Anthony, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Um, Sunday morning, kind of still waking up a little bit, but I'm awesome. I'm feeling healthy and very excited to be talking with you both today. Yeah, I'm a big fan of yours, Anthony. I uh, I I was converted. I converted to a high demand fundamentalist religion when I was 17 years old. Mikkel was a member of the same faith, and it mm. takes so long if you're interested in truth and you're you're thinking about things critically to deconstruct things in the natural way. It took me years and years. Um, mm-hmm. You you found this kind of shortcut to get people to start thinking critically about stuff. Tell us about street epistemology and what that is. And also maybe before you do that, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I live in Texas and I'm a non-believer. I don't think that there are any gods. So I, def- I define myself as an atheist, um, married, have two kids. They're teenagers now. I have more time on my hands to experiment with things that I find interesting. And one of the things that I found really interesting was this, this thing called street epistemology, which as you alluded to, it's, it's a, it is, I think a shortcut to helping people take another look at their views, but in a way where they tend to enjoy the interaction and it seems to be more productive than just arguing or giving people facts to show that they're wrong. So that was really appealing to me because I was having bad conversations with the loved ones in my life. Um, in fact, I, I still have, uh, relationships that are, on the mend, possibly, maybe even, maybe, maybe not even repairable, honestly, because of the way that I interacted with them before. But this approach of street epistemology, which is where you use questions to challenge people's views in a respectful manner to get to the foundation of what's propping it up, it seems like that is much more effective in helping a person take another look at their views and maybe even get them on that journey where they're transitioning out of their views because they might realize through the, the act of using this approach. Maybe I don't have a good reason for thinking that that's true. What would my life be like if I didn't think that this was true? And just the act of engaging with somebody on those points can help move them along in their journey on these beliefs. How did you get started with this kind of thought process or this method of um, getting people to question? Well, I was arguing with people, strangers and loved ones and, and losing friends because of it. Now there were people that were drawn to it because they liked seeing that 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 vitriolic back and forth, but it wasn't really in line with even my 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 nature. Like uh, I even felt uncomfortable arguing with people. I felt sick afterwards, like doing it. But then I discovered a book called A Manual for Creating Atheists by Peter Bogosian, which said, "Hey, you don't have to argue with people. If you just use questions, you're going to probably help them realize they don't have good reasons for thinking what they think is true." And they will probably take another look at their views and they may even abandon views that are not supportable. So that was appealing to me. That was extremely appealing to me. So I tried to use it and I was pleasantly surprised to learn that it seems like it actually is working. It does seem to be more effective. So that was a game changer for me. That was a game changer for my interactions. And it was a game changer for me personally because I finally, not finally, but I had, I have a purpose in life and, but this gave me another purpose, I suppose. Like, Hey, I can maybe really, really work hard at this and get good at it and maybe get feedback and maybe even develop this method even further than it started. And that's what seems to be the case. I've been doing it for about eight years now. And I think we've really come a long way, even since that book was written. So I know you've got a, a YouTube uh, channel, Anthony, and I've, I've watched a bunch of your videos and I've, I've seen you sit down with people as they're going on hikes or, or sitting in a park at a picnic bench. And, and I understand the process myself of what you're doing. Um, but I'm curious if you can explain to the listeners, like for the, for those who want to, again, they can go to the videos, they can watch them, but maybe just here, give them a brief introduction of what that conversation looks like, what kind of things you're asking and, and what is the, what is the thinking going on upstairs and what that question is designed to do? And and also, by the way, I'll say, mm. um, just as I think people 
will look at you from a believer standpoint and go, that's not fair. He's manipulating. I don't think you are, number one. And number two, I think the believers are doing the same thing. They're sending missionaries out or or sharing the good message. Um, I think we all try to pose our beliefs as believable. So mm-hmm. I'm curious what the process looks like mm-hmm. and what is, what's the mechanisms that you're trying to initiate upstairs? Whew, that's a good question. So the, what you're trying to accomplish, I think probably depends on you personally and what your goals are. I try to tell people to look at street epistemology as a tool that you can use to accomplish different things, much like you can grab a hammer and, and tear down a wall. You can build something with it too. So the, 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 the approach of street epistemology is a tool set that you can use to say, you know what, I'm going to go out and I'm going to find Christians and I'm going to talk to them about Jesus and help them realize that they don't have any good reason for thinking that that's true. You could do that. There may even have been times where I've done that, but over the last several years, you start to realize this tool is really good for helping people take another look at the, the confidence that they, that they have that their claim is factually true. And that's a useful endeavor regardless of where you stand. So if you are a non-believer or you're a theist, we want people to learn this tool because it can be helpful when you have these engagements. Because I think fundamentally, we all seem to be, we, we all, for the most part, seem to have one thing in common. And that is, generally speaking, we want to believe true things. Most people agree to that. Whether you're an atheist or a theist, more than likely you want to hold as many true things in your mind as possible. And I think this tool can be really useful for that. Now, how would you go about doing it? I think one of the first things you need to realize is that uh, we all approach these conversations with a bias, whether we're evangelizing for a God or we're an atheist who's who's engaging with a theist or anything else. Um, Even even the reporters who question the president or one of their one of his advisors, for example, um, we all have these objectives when we go to these, when we interact with others, but um, realizing that you yourself have a bias that can influence the direction of the conversation is probably one of the first things that's useful to acknowledge so that you can set it aside. If you can set aside your own ego and your bias, when you engage with others on this, using this approach, it seems like it's more effective in helping that person take a look at their views because they're not approaching it. You need to try to create, I guess, create an environment where, you want to encourage the person to take another look at how they concluded that something was true rather than convince me that what you think is true. That's a completely different dynamic. So I'm not asking you, for example, Bill, to convince me that what you think is true. I'm asking how you became convinced. It's a completely different approach. And I think it's critical because it helps another person. It helps that person take a look at their views using their own terminology and their own words. So that's a very important thing. And then maybe, I mean, there's, there's other aspects to this, but street epistemology, street epistemology is largely about asking questions, not telling people my own views per se, unless they want to know you can do that, but it's not giving people facts or showing that they're wrong or ridiculing them. It's having them explain how they arrived at their conclusion. And the act of them expressing this can really reveal problems in their methods. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, I know I listened to another podcast where you were being interviewed and you mentioned that you grew up uh, Catholic. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, I have not heard you explain your own deconstruction yet. So I'm mm-hmm. curious how you went from being Catholic and maybe you always just like thought like this doesn't make sense. Or did you have like a light bulb moment or was there a multi-faceted long timeline of you kind of taking things apart and finally coming to a conclusion that that wasn't for you? No, I I wasn't really invested in the belief as much as the people around me were when I was a kid. So I was surrounded by people who seemed like they believed it. Um, Parents who made us go to church, took us to church. I looked at it as making us go. Like I was made to go. I was literally made to go to church. I didn't want to go to, I I didn't think that it was true. And uh, being the oldest of of four, four, I was part of that four. Um, I think my parents were a little worried about how I might influence them a little bit. I'm actually talking a little bit low because my mom is visiting and she's in the other room and she's still a believer. <laughs> it's kind of a sore subject, uh, maybe a little bit, but um, it's funny. She came over to visit. I'm like, well, I have, I have an interview to do. It's, you know, she knows what I do. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting off topic. Um, it wasn't like somebody started asking me the types of questions that I that you'll see in my videos where I ask people. 
But now that I look back at it, I was probably asking myself some of those same questions, probably not as, as um, sharp. The questions weren't probably as sharp as you might see in the videos, but I was wondering, I was questioning it. And uh, that alarmed my parents, that alarmed the peers that I was around because everyone seemingly believed it. So I, I pretended that I believed it for a very long time up until I started dating. And, you know, at that point you're sort of an adult and, um, but I understand what it means to believe, to really think that this is true, to think that, that there's this wonderful life waiting for you after you die. And, and I understand all the emotional investment that comes with it. In fact, when you talk to thousands of people about these beliefs, you really start to develop an intense empathy for other people that um, you're really not messing around when you engage with people and you're asking questions about their deeply held beliefs. It could be really, it could be really disturbing and problematic. But my transition was so long and slow and gradual. You kind of like talking about like, I'm thinking about like the flattening the curve thing. Like my, my was just very slow and steady out <laughs> over decades, like probably like 20 years. So it was a very gradual thing where I just became more and more comfortable with identifying as an atheist. So I have a question for you. Actually, two questions. One, was there any like sure. singular event that kind of got you to to start questioning or was it kind of a culmination of things? And then two, you talked um, in the beginning about your intent not being to um, persuade people one way or another. So mm -hmm. kind of a, I want to I know what the intent is. Um, in asking right. people those questions, because it feels like your your intent is to sway them to um, either not believe or to sway them mm. to start questioning. Mm. Okay, you locked they, up. Okay, yeah, I think I got that. So the was there one really big event when I was a kid? I think there were a series of there were a few things that I remember, and there were probably more that I don't remember, and I I just will never be able to answer that question accurately, but. I do distinctly remember being in seventh or eighth, sixth or seventh grade, maybe, and then a priest coming in to explain how boys and girls were different, and not not from like a sexual perspective, but like the the man, the boys, the men are the leaders of the house, and the women need to be subservient to the men. And I remember thinking, like looking at my classmates, and they were all looking around, stunned too, like what is this? Like it just seemed ridiculous. And then immediately after that, we went out on the playground. And sure enough, this never happened before. All the boys were on one side of the playground and all the girls were on the other side. They did, they literally divided us by that message. And I thought, this is, this is not right. There's something, there's something really, really wrong about this. So that was a very powerful moment. And there were probably, I'm sure there were more when you're, when you're sitting in church and you're listening to this stuff and you're questioning it and you're looking around more than likely it was moments like that where it just sort of dawns in you like, I think this is made up. <laughs> I really do. Okay. So to the other question, there are my goals when I go out to do street epistemology can vary even mid conversation. So I may go out and say, I'm looking to have conversations where I can find somebody who raises a claim. I don't even care what the claim is. And I want to question them to the point where maybe they start to wonder if they have a good reason for it, or if they've used a good method for verifying that reason, because I think that that's valuable. And I'll generally explain to people that that's what I want to do. Now, they generally also pick the convert the topic that we explore. So they may they may be an atheist who doesn't think that there's a God. I will still engage with them in the exact same way that I would with a theist who's sure that Jesus is real, for example, or, or a Muslim. So my approach really doesn't change, but it's not always about knocking down a person's confidence. It's not. It really isn't because... Uh, Somebody through the course of these questions could discover to themselves, and I could even discover that they used a really good reason and a really good method for verifying that reason. And it's helpful for me as the questioner to possibly say, hmm, they have some really good points there. That might actually be true. That might be something I want to consider adopting. So while I, I, I can get, I can definitely understand how a person could watch 10 videos and get the impression they're looking for believers and they're trying to turn them into atheists. I can see that impression because street epistemology can be used for that. But I, I hope people understand that it's a tool that can be used for all sorts of things. We want theists to learn this tool so that they can use it with atheists. We want people who think we should all ignore the, these orders about staying home and use SE with people who are advocating for the opposite view and vice versa. Because we think that the, the people who are using street epistemology, we think that 
this is a very useful tool that can help society overall. I hope that answered your question. But uh, yeah, that's great. I, yeah. I love um, that you use this with believers and, and non-believers. You know, for lack of a better word, um, because it it just goes to show that like your character and that your intent isn't to dissuade or or hurt people. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that that's interesting. I did have a question. Um, how did you learn this method? Mm -hmm. Yeah, hurting people is one of the last things that anyone, most anyone who gets involved in the SE, I think probably wants to do. Um, because you you are most effective at SE when you're empathetic and you take your ego out of it. So I think it's kind of hard to also add on, now I want to destroy people or tear them down when you have those other two components to it. Um, I got started in this by reading Bogosian's book and then looking for examples online of people doing it and there were none. And now there are probably more than a thousand video examples and, and thousands of people who are doing this. So in the last eight years or so, we've been developing materials and, and putting videos online. And that was really sort of my journey into it. There was no one, nobody else recording conversations where they said, Hey, I'm doing street epistemology. Give me some feedback. So when you're the first person doing something like that, that other people are interested in, it kind of gets people's attention and their feedback was making my interactions better. And my interactions were helping other people get involved in it to give me feedback to get better. And other people started uploading it. It's been this really positive snowball kind of growing. And, and here we are today. We've, we've started a nonprofit now within the last um, year to help encourage people to start learning this method. So it's really taking off. And in fact, I get messages now almost every day with, by people saying, have you ever considered using SE to challenge some of the claims that are coming up regarding this coronavirus? I see a lot of misinformation. Absolutely. It's, it's a wonderful tool. So it's cool to see people realizing the, the, the versatility and effectiveness of the tool and, and wondering how can we use this to help others question other things. You, uh, in another uh, interview you did, you were talking about the backfire effect and, and, Mm -hmm. For listeners, there's a lot of psychology behind the beliefs we choose to hold, how systems or organizations can manipulate us and pressure us into holding those beliefs, and, and how it can be so difficult to think critically about anything um, in a way that we actually chase down the data and choose the most reasonable conclusion that requires the least amount of conjecture. Um, and I know you understand that, Anthony, but I'm, I'm curious, just from a psychology standpoint, your your thoughts on the beliefs we humans hold and how it's so easy for us to be born into a system or a set of beliefs or learn those beliefs at a young age and wrap our arms around them. And, 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 it, and it's so difficult, even when it's absurd. And again, I don't mean to pick fun at certain belief systems, but um, I was Mormon. To some degree, once you understand the data, it's absurd. Um, Scientologists, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, uh, and, and there's a hundred Bigfoot, um, all kinds of things, right? And and yet, it's so tough for any of us to think critically about our sacred cows, our internal beliefs that are important to us, that give us meaning. Your thoughts on the psychology of of that, and and maybe how difficult it is to get people to to think critically about things, even if the data doesn't back up their belief. Yeah. Yeah. That is that realization that our beliefs are so tied to who we are. The act of challenging deeply held beliefs is seen usually by people as an affront to them personally. You asking me, why on earth do you think that that God is real? You can even soften that question. Why do you think God is real? That could be very insulting to person to a person that could be equivalent to saying, um, how do you know that you're real? Because sometimes we internalize these beliefs so much, they become a part of our identity. So the recognition of that challenge was key, I think, to the success that we're seeing in street epistemology, realizing that people fall in love with their beliefs. And if I challenge your belief claim about Mormonism, you're going to probably feel very defensive. It might result in something called the backfire effect, where you may double down on your belief and decide, I, I don't like what that person was saying about my religion and ridiculing me about it. I'm not going to spend twice as much time studying my holy book. So you're, you're, if, you, if you approach these very sensitive topics in the incorrect way or the way that the person's not ready for, you can end up driving them deeper into their belief because more than likely they're going to see it as you questioning them as being a good person. We generally tend to see ourselves as good moral agents and 
that's only because I, there's, there's God, God is there. So disentangling the belief from the person is an extremely crucial aspect of SE. And I think what you'll notice in the video examples, or if you observe exchanges online or whatever, you'll notice that we're not attacking, we're not attacking anything, but we're, we're certainly not challenging the belief. We're acknowledging that you believe it and that you think it's true. I'm interested in how you concluded that it really is the case. Can you take me through your process? When you engage in a person where they're revealing their process, they're going to probably be less defensive and more open to exploring with you their methodology. So that's a, that's a very important thing that we've learned in SE. I think, I, you know, I watched a couple of videos over um, the last couple of days as Bill <laughs> um, kind of prepped me for this interview. Interesting, there were, there were several where I could just see all the mental gymnastics of people jumping through trying to explain whatever belief it was. You know, one I watched yesterday was uh, it, he looked like a young college kid and he first started talking about morality and then he started talking about abortion and then he started talking about uh, um, yeah, how doubt. the devil gave him doubts. And I, I could see myself there because I've, I've been in that spot, you know, it, and it just was interesting to see the hoops that people will jump through to convince themselves almost of uh, what it is there they believe. Yeah, that's a big, I, I'm so glad you mentioned that you watched that video because I love it because he uh, he initially surfaces this position that he has on abortion and then he he himself acknowledges that it's tied to morality. And then we uncover that at the heart of it, it's uh, his God belief is really, his views on abortion would change significantly if he realizes God wasn't real. But then we start saying, okay, well, what would it take for us to explore your God belief? And he said, well, there are some there are some questions there are some doubts that are off limits so then the whole conversation was not really about his god existing it was about well is there any benefit to doubt is there any benefit to questioning the beliefs that we hold and he ended up coming around on it and saying yeah i guess it probably is beneficial to question these things um gosh there was a second part to your to your um what you were saying there i may have missed it i'm sorry <laughs> but um yeah uh Approaching these discussions from a place of empathy and and wonder and really trying to get to the to the heart of it, what's really propping it up can be extremely useful in helping another person take a look at this. And it can be upsetting to some people. Some people can really struggle with the questions that you ask. And so I th there's another aspect of this is I think it's really important is to try to make yourself available after the talk so people can reach out to you and get resources if they need it. But I feel like I missed something there. I, I, I feel like I wanted to um, say something else to, in response to your question, but I'm forgetting what you asked. Sorry. No, I was just saying that it, it just was fascinating to watch the mental gymnastics and how I could see myself. Um, I could put myself in, the, in that kid's shoes because I've been there before. And so it just mm -hmm. was fascinating to see it from an outside perspective. Well, that's why I like recording. That reminds me of what I wanted to say. Thank you. That reminds me. I mean, that's why I – this is why – I like to record the talks and share them online because it's a much more efficient use of my time to record it and upload it so that other people like yourself can watch it and say, well, I was there once. I, I was really w afraid of questioning and doubt and all this stuff. Um, but I think it's also important for be people who hold beliefs, which is all of us, to watch the interactions, to see the defensive things people will say to maintain beliefs that they can't justify. That is That is so cool to watch. Because you're distanced from it. it's not you being on the end of it, but you can relate to it and say, "Hmm, what views do I have that I might be disingenuous about defending?" So it can be really useful overall. We uh, we have a, a listener who threw up a couple comments here. I'll put them up on the screen for you, Anthony. Uh, Jason says epistemology is a defensive tool to help people be inoculated by untruths, removing the offensive debate and conversation, while instead dissecting the confidence of one's methodology. Helps engage in safe conversation with anyone, no matter the belief. I rarely use epistemology for religious conversations, as those conversations only take about five minutes before you get to faith. I, I want to push back against Jason. I think you would, too, that when you start asking people why they believe, and I know you always start off with the question of how certain are you from a scale of one to 100? How certain mm -hmm. are you, right? And, and as people answer the question, how certain they are, and then you start asking, why do you believe this? As they start getting inside their own head and thinking like, oh, I believe it for this reason and this reason, and this reason. And then you start to um, ask them if those are reliable ways to know that those things are true. Um, I've seen this work as I've watched your videos and I've, I've done a podcast, not this one, done a podcast on my particular religion. And it took me a lot longer in terms of 
getting people to start thinking, but I would get 300 episodes in and people would message me and go, I've listened to you from the beginning. And I finally just started, you know, disbelieving or, or thinking about these things in such a way that I was able to let them go. Hmm. Talking about epistemology really does work, right? I mean, it, it, I see the results in your videos and I've seen it in my own life as I've watched people. Mm-hmm. So uh, for those listening who might not be familiar with the word epistemology is the study of knowledge or in street epistemology, I think we tend to refer to it more as like the way that you're going about confirming mm-hmm. that you have a justification for being confident that something is true. And I don't always ask the the confidence scale question, but I think it's really useful to do so. How sure are you on a scale from zero to 100 that this is true? They almost, most people usually give pretty high degrees of confidence for their belief, but we don't focus on the belief. We focus on the reasons and the methods that a person is using to bring them to that high degree of confidence. And uh, it does seem to be focusing on the epistemology rather than the belief does seem to be more effective. And sometimes even in a short amount of time, five, 10 minutes, it's almost disadvantageous to spend two hours talking with somebody about their God belief. If you're using this approach, five, 10 minutes, that's pretty much all you need to reveal the reason, the real reason somebody thinks something is true, and then their method for confirming the validity of the reason. And as that person had written, sometimes, uh, usually when it comes to a supernatural claim, it comes down to faith. Faith, it seems, people are indeed using it as an epistemology, as a way to coming to say, I know that this is true. And and that that's probably a whole episode in and of itself. What do you do when somebody surfaces faith? But if you watch a few of, of the videos that are online, you'll probably get a sense of how we tend to respond there. So this is this is also interesting. I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, I'm a nurse practitioner. I'm thinking about how I can apply this to my practice and help patients. And so Great. I'm going to have to check out that book. And are there any other tools mm. or resources that you would suggest to help someone kind of get started on this process? Yeah, I would recommend Bogosian's second book over his first one. It's called How to Have Impossible Conversations. So whether you are in healthcare or you're just um, an activist who likes talking to people about God like myself or anything in between, you can learn this approach. And I think you'll find it, especially when there's certain um, aspects that I think will will make it easier for you to use the approach. Um, you being in healthcare, if you're if you're viewed as an expert or a trustworthy individual, you will probably do even better with these types of questions. Um, a stranger on the street asking people questions, that, that element of trust isn't usually there. But um, I think you could absolutely use this in that setting. In fact, there are people that are in the medical setting who have reached out to me to say, I've watched your videos and now I'm using it. Or, um, I, yeah, I've started using street epistemology in my interactions and it's improving them. It's actually better. I've even had people who study psychology, psychotherapy, and uh, maybe they're a little bit familiar with motivational interviewing. I think there's some overlap there. And they said, I've watched some SE videos. I'm now utilizing it. And I'm having better interactions with my patients than I've ever had in 20 years. So it's really fascinating to see how people across the spectrum are picking up on this tool set. It's... This is why I'm so excited about it, because this is far this is far bigger than atheists engaging with theists. This is a tool that all humans need to learn, which is why we set up our nonprofit and why I'm so excited to be talking to folks like you so we can get the word out and get more people doing this. Uh, Jason also said, uh, you know, and would you live your life differently if you found out your belief was untrue? For most people, that involves every single person in their life, family and friends. There, as, yeah. as I've um, had thousands of conversations with people who believe in a particular system. And, and as I've watched those, like some people continue to believe even as they know the same data, even as they know the same historical anomalies, even as they read about the same contradictions, they just have a way of making space in their head that it still it still works out. That's the answer. And other people let it go. And, and there is a lot at stake. Like, um, to you saying earlier, like you realize there's the risk of also causing pain here. There are a lot of people who leave religion and they're grateful for it. I know thousands of them. I'm one of them. Mikel's another. Um, as we've exited our system and chose to be more rational, critical thinking humans about the way the world works and to to give legitimate credibility to science and, and data – um, our lives are better. We've, we've just, life has been more fun and enjoyable and, and good, but let's be honest. There are people out there who their religion, religious life, their community is everything to them. And it feels at least be, 
And again, I think on the other side, most people look back and go, I'm thankful I deconstructed that. But at least on the front end, it, it looks scary because there is the risk. Uh, some communities label those who deconstruct as like apostates or yeah. uh, fallen or lost. And, and when that happens, families begin this shunning process yeah. and distancing. And, and so then there ends up being all of this turmoil and trauma as, as you begin to do something different than the rest of your tribe is doing. Maybe speak for a minute about your experience um, as you've watched this process unfold. Do, are most people grateful on the other side to start thinking critically about their beliefs? Or are you also seeing people who are having really painful experience in leaving? Mm-hmm. And maybe both. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I have my own personal experience. But then again, I also have the benefit of hearing from hundreds of people who shared their stories because they've decided to embark on an honest exploration of their belief. Uh, of, of a friend of mine and I, well, she, uh, her name is Rebecca Fox. She recently did a, a, a survey and I think she had almost a thousand people reply to it. I think the overwhelming majority of the people who responded, this was specifically for people who no longer believe in any gods and it was about their journey out. I think we called it, um, there's a video on my channel where we, we, we animate the, the survey results. It's called how we let go. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. So look into that if you if you if you're interested. But the overwhelming majority of atheists who responded to, to that survey say my life is absolutely better than it ever was when I was believing that stuff. Now there are some people who still struggle with it. Uh, I've been volunteering for recovering from religion, which is a resource uh, that might be an interesting uh, somebody to to maybe interview down the road for your show. But this is an organization that's there for people who are struggling with their doubts and their questions. And where do I go? Where do I find community? How, how would I deal with, with morality if I no longer think that a God is necessary for it? And uh, so there are, there are groups out there to help people with that transition or to find resources. So do people do struggle? In fact, there's, there are a lot of non-believers who still have legacy fears because of the God belief that they used to have. They might still have a fear of hell. That's a very common thing. It's normal to be afraid of hell, even though you don't think the God is real. Or when you think about it, you're like, oh, I I understand that it's probably made up, but I still am afraid of it. So while your life would probably be better if you came to acknowledge that you don't have a good reason for thinking that that is true, it's not just all rainbows and sunshine on the other end. It can be difficult. But I think the solution to that is, is giving yourself permission to find other people who made that journey out and find out what resources they found useful. And there's a community of people, just like you were in a community of people who believe there's a community, a loving community, an empathetic community of non-believers who are out there that are just as good as the people that you were with when you were in the religion. Uh, you don't suddenly become a bad, evil, nasty person when you, when you, decide, I can't believe God is real. Many people don't change all that much. That was one of the biggest realizations. Like, I'm really not that much different. I I still pay my taxes. I still cut my grass. I don't kick my dog. I love my wife and kids, for example. And uh, nothing's really changed. I just have maybe have a little bit more free time on Sundays and maybe a little bit of a legacy fear of hell every once in a while. Yeah, we call it Second Saturday. Second Saturday. Second Saturday is the best. (laughs) I love Sundays. I mean, we we, uh, normally sleep in. Um, We had a family member come over today. Yeah, Sundays are great. Well, Bill, I was having a hard time waking up this morning. You know how it goes. You stay up too late partying or hanging out with friends. And then you've got to get up early to record a podcast. So what do we do in those instances? And on every other day of the week? Coffee. Red Roca coffee. It helps you and me as we're awakening in the morning. My favorite brew is Heathens or Good Mojo. And sometimes I like it hot. In the summertime, every once in a while, I'll drink it cold. Red Roca Coffee is a small family-owned business here in the United States. If you need a cup of joe to help you awaken, give Red Roca Coffee a try. We're sure you'll like it. We're sure you'll like it. That's Red Roca, R-O-C-A, coffee.com. When you place your order, put in the code AWAKE. A-W-A-K-E. You'll get a 10% discount, and you'll get free shipping on orders over $30. Check out Red Roca Coffee today. Again, Red Roca Coffee. For those times when you need help awakening. So do you ever keep in touch with people that you had conversations with on the street and, and follow up and see if anything has shifted and kind of where they're at? Not as much as I would like. So I've been trying to do this thing where I offer a, a one of three puzzle pieces to incentivize people to come back for two more talks. And they often do come back. 
to build out this this set of of things you know uh, it's kind of a gimmick to get them to come back but i want repeat conversations i want to hear back from the people that i speak with so i do give them a card and occasionally i'll get an email from them saying well sometimes it's saying um where, where's the link to the video? Cause I want to watch it. I want to show it to my friends or I saw the video. Would you mind taking it down? I hate when that happens. Uh, but for the most part, people, if they do reach out, they express gratitude for having had the talk or let's say they come back and they see me again. They may bring a friend. I think I even have a video on my channel with a guy who brought a friend back because I had talked to him the previous day. So for the most part, it seems people enjoy the interactions and um, they do give me feedback. And the feedback that I generally get is positive. People seem to enjoy it, but uh, I got to tell you, I, I would love it if every single person that I spoke to contacted me back like a year later, just to let me know, did you remember it? what did you think about it? But uh, these are usually just sort of one-off drive-bys, unfortunately, but I'm trying to change that. Yeah. Um, an atheist. And I'll, when I was in place of having the on confidence in um, as I had confidence in that I, I rarely ever had to think about death and it's only when I no longer had any any kind of certainty of what's on the other side in fact maybe my certainty if anything is that it it just ends um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on like on again I'm just one atheist among millions. And my life is good, but I find myself thinking a lot more about death and and mm. the scariness of that, like the the last few minutes and the fact of who you are and your consciousness and your experience just ends. Mm. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on like, in your perspective as an atheist for you in that, and that is kind of a a belief system, right? That there are, there are not these things. Mm -hmm. um, your thoughts on like, what are the pros or cons having left Catholicism mm -hmm. moved into atheism? Um, are there things that still like scare you more now than they did then? Are there things that uh, are more enjoyable now than, than they were then? Like what kind of things uh, do you spend your time thinking about both good and bad in, in terms of that dichotomy? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's weird. It's weird because when I became more comfortable acknowledging that I don't believe in any gods and I don't think that there's an afterlife, and this is probably the one and only life that we have, and you start to realize how how um, how much of a slave we are to the beliefs we hold and that we have control over those beliefs. When you come to that realization, at least for me, a lot of my fears went away. I used to be a really anxious um, child, like really anxious. And... I, there's not much that I'm afraid of these days. It's it's strange. Uh, I, and I think I think it is somewhat. There's probably other factors. Me just growing up and getting older or whatever. But I think it's largely attributed to my my lack of a belief in God, my non-belief, my belief that there is no God. I think strength. It strengthened me. I'm not afraid of. I'm afraid of dying. The act of dying, like that knowledge. Oh wow, this is it. I'm 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 in pain. I'm having trouble breathing. This is probably it. This might be the last time I have this conversation with that person. That that anxiety that comes with the process of dying, I think, is going to be real. But um, when I'm dead, that's I think that that's probably it. So, you know, putting my thinking about what my life was like before I was born is and thinking, well, that's probably how it's going to be when I'm dead. And I didn't worry back then. It's going to be this. So you know what I mean? It's like when I think of it logically, it doesn't make sense to be afraid of dying. Now I am a little worried about like what life will be like for the people who are still here after I'm gone. My wife, my kids, you know, my nephews, nieces, um, other people, you know, I want to try to leave the world in a better place for them, you know, because they're going to be around. So that's, that's how I find meaning and purpose is by acknowledging what I do have control over and what I don't have control over. And um, I'm a, I'm a much less anxious person now than I was when I believed it. And I think there's a relationship there somehow. Same. I find that my anxiety has decreased a ton. Really? Um, I have kind of a, a random off-topic question. Have you ever been confused sure. for or ever told that you look like Will Payton from Remember the Titans? Will Payton. No. Um, somebody says I sound like Robert Downey Jr. Will Payton. Will Payton. Uh, he's with who now? 
I have to look this up. He was on the movie Remember the Titans. He's one of the coaches. Oh, that guy. The yeah. dad? The coach? Um, no, I never got that one. But I think there's a coach. Uh, there's like a defensive coach on the um, – is, is the Panther? I don't even follow sports. But there's like a the football team called the Panthers maybe. And I think the defensive coach – and then my my daughter actually she was watching a TikTok and she saw a person who looks just like me on TikTok. She's like, "Dad, this guy looks just like you." And I I, I watched it. And I thought, you know, she's pretty right. That's that's pretty close there. Yeah, you do sound. If I close my eyes and you talk, I do picture Iron Man. Really? That's yeah. So yeah you do have a little bit of uh, Downey Junior.'s voice to you. Yeah, I, I guess I, I I don't know. Can you can you? Is it harder for the person who has the voice to recognize the similarities? Is it e- easier for other people? I'm not sure. There's, there's actually been science done on this that we hear our own voices differently than the rest of the world hears our voice. So there is something to how we perceive ourselves sounding mm-hmm. uh, versus how the world perceives us sounding. Yeah, this came up in a talk that I had with a Muslim guy who, when we first met, he was a Muslim, I think. Like he he. He was transitioning out. He was transitioning to atheism, but I didn't realize it. And I had three conversations with him, and then I think in the third talk he had mentioned uh, we were talking about how he didn't. He saw the videos of him, and he was mentioning how he didn't like hearing his own voice. And then people weighed in, in the comments on that one. It's kind of interesting, but yeah, I guess there's something different about the way we hear our own voice compared to how others are hearing it. Um, I'm curious. You mentioned as we were prepping for the interview, you gave me a heads up that there are a lot of folks out there who. Um, aren't as happy about what you're doing and and that we needed to kind of watch the comments and just be careful. And, and so far, everything's been great. <laughs> but I'm curious, what what is the feedback you get from the naysayers? What are what are their what is their beef with you? What what do they perceive you as doing and what are the kinds of things they accuse you of or or kind of label uh, in terms of of seeing you as a negative force? Yeah, this was a kind of a baffling. I mean, I sort of expected to get some pushback from theists who didn't like what they were seeing in the videos. Um, and it's understandable because they're watching people who hold their same view struggle to answer very basic questions. And if you, let's say, for example, you're watching somebody really struggle to answer a question about their reason why they think Jesus is real, and I believe in Jesus, and I know the best answer to give. It could be really frustrating to see somebody struggle and then maybe watch thousands of comments of atheists acknowledging the struggle that that person had. So I think that is, it's a very, very small segment, but there are some people who are very alarmed at what we're doing by challenging deeply held views, specifically Christian ones. That, that seems to be most of the, most of the fear, most of the concern seems to be coming from a very small segment of God believers who are worried that this question could lead somebody away from the truth of Jesus, for example, or the truth of Allah. I've seen concerns from different religions. Uh, and I think they have a right to be concerned because these questions are really good at exposing problems with people's reasons and methods. And if you, if you don't have evidence to back up your claims, if it really does come down to faith and faith is defined it every, any way that you want, um, and we learn that the faith as you're defining it is problematic in some way, they they do have a right to be worried about what we're doing. Um, I would be worried too if I believed in God, for example. And I saw all these people going out and asking these very basic questions. And you can li- almost literally see a person becoming less certain about what they're believing. And we're replicating this. We're, we're commoditizing this. This is this is going worldwide. So there are people who are worried about it and they, they will try to... Um, I think they're trying to slow us down a little bit, maybe get in the way of our progress. But the way that I look at it, and I, I even tell people, you know, try to learn it. You know, if you're a if you're a Mormon and you're worried about street epistemology because you watched me interrogate in a respectful way two Mormon missionaries, maybe you can learn street epistemology and use it when you engage with a Muslim. So, um, but the way that I the here's my thinking: if you have the truth, if you have the truth, you shouldn't be afraid of people questioning your reasons for thinking that it's true. You should be embracing it. So I would really like to try to encourage people who are worried about what we're doing to get involved with what we're doing and help us make this better, help us improve it. But but of that little small percentage of people that I said, hey, just keep an eye out for it because not everyone's really on board with what I'm doing. Um, there are some people who just want to stop us from doing it. And I think that's really telling. I think it's very telling if you have to misrepresent what we're doing to try to get us to stop doing what we're doing. So 
Is there anything that you hold truth, um, you know, in regards to any topic? Like, where do you fall? How do you, how do you discover what's true? Um, and, and maybe share a few examples of things that you hold true. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can take the most recent example. I, I'm currently under the impression that the people who are going out and gathering in large groups in public during what seems to be a pandemic and cases are going up, it seems to be a really foolish thing. However, I'm not, I'm not, and this is something that you learn when you do street epistemology enough, you learn not to fall in love with your views. And, um, I'm, I'm intentionally reminding myself to stay open to the possibility that we may be completely overreacting. And so if those tend to tend to tend to be pretty neutral and regardless of the topic, is that correct? I try to follow the science wherever I can, but I'm still open to realizing that I could be deceived. I could be mistaken. I could be in a bubble and um, we're being completely taken advantage of or something. It doesn't seem to be the case. I'm not saying that. Um, by all accounts, it seems like laying low and staying in is, and wearing a mask when people come over, like like uh, the visitor that I had this morning. Um, that seems like that's the most prudent thing to do. But if, um, if the science seems to show that we are safe to go back to work, to send our kids to school, and, uh, and the numbers bear that out. I'm not going to be so wet. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, it, the, the thought will cross my mind. Gosh, did we just completely overreact? Was, was I, was I stupid to be staying in my house all this time and, and buying double the amount of groceries that, that time I went three weeks ago? Um, was that an overreaction? It could be embarrassing to acknowledge that I was mistaken, but I'm aware of that possibility. And I'm, I'm intentionally <laughs> reminding myself not to do that to be open and say, okay, if, you know, if the science says we should all be out there on day on March 1st, for example, um, then I will probably do it. But, um, that that's one of many, I mean, there, there are times where I've had conversations with people about guns, for example, and they seem to have a really good reason and method for verifying their conclusion that it's a good idea to be carrying a gun to a campus, for example. So I've shifted in my confidence on lots of things. Because not only because of the tool that I've learned of street epistemology, but because of the interactions that I'm having with other people where I'm using the tool. And it looks like we lost Mikkel. Yeah, hopefully she'll come back here in a second. Yeah. I got one last question for you. Then I want to give you a minute to just tell us places that people can go to find out more about you and and to find out about this 501c3 that you've, you've initiated. Um, but my question is in the... And again, it's a whole spectrum. So I'm going to put people into two groups, but I realize that there's a complete spectrum of how this falls. There are... Yeah. High demand fundamentalist, deeply unhealthy religions that man- manipulate and really do its best to get people to continue believing. And then there are much softer religions that um, that tend to, you know, if people show up, great. If people don't, we're not gonna we're not gonna be in your face. And if people leave, then we're not gonna we're not gonna label them or or call them bad names. If you, if you leave the Methodist church and you show up uh, at a Baptist church the following week, there may be a person or two who says something, but the church as an institution probably isn't going to do anything. Mm-hmm. You leave Mormonism and you go to Jehovah witnesses or vice versa. There's something dramatic that happens. <laughs> and, and so those high demand fundamentalist religions, when you get down to the data, it's sometimes I think easier to see they don't hold up, but there's also this manipulation going on to, encourage you to stay and pressure you into staying. And and in some ways it's harder to leave, harder to disbelieve, Yeah, even if the beliefs are absurd. And so I'm curious if you feel like street epistemology works better with a high demand fundamentalist religion that uses a lot of unhealthy mechanisms or whether it just a run of the mill religion that's been around longer and had a chance to kind of round off and soften those edges. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you find that, because it's also, if there isn't any um, sharp edges, it's also easier just to say like, ah, oh, I like it here and it's, it's good. And I really don't want to question this. Your thoughts on which side of the spectrum street epistemology seems to get maybe more success, getting people to think. So if we're defining, that's a really good question. If we're defining st- success as getting people to think, I think people will think more about their views regardless of the, the penalties of acknowledging that you're questioning or doubting. So if you're in a, if you're in Jehovah's Witnesses or Scientology or the LDS Church, where there may be a cost, a social cost 
to acknowledging that you don't believe it anymore compared to like maybe Catholicism where they're not keep like, I, I, it seems like in the Catholic church, we can kind of come or go. People didn't really say anything about it. I don't, so there wasn't much of a penalty there. Street epistemology will be effective in challenging people's claims, regardless of what institution you're in. But as far as that's, that's one aspect of it, but there's a, there's the other side of that is the action that a person decides to take because of the questions that you've asked them and their inability to possibly sufficiently answer those questions to themselves. So do you follow what I'm saying? I think, I think street epistemology will, will result in people reflecting on their views. No question. A very, very, almost, almost certain when you approach people on their views, you're going to cause them to question and you're going to help them reflect on their views, whether they decide to go the next step and say, okay, um, I'm willing to incur the cost of leaving this group now. That's a whole different. That's a whole different animal. I think there are some institutions who set the bar very high. There's a huge cost to leaving the Jehovah's Witness. There's a huge. There's a cost. Maybe not as huge as I don't know. There's a cost to leaving the LDS Church. The cost of leaving Christ, uh, Catholicism. Maybe well, maybe not so much. They're losing so many people anyways. What's another? What's another person leaving that? Um, that is. It, it's so insidious. Uh, sometimes the the uh, the barriers that people will put into place to prevent people from leaving they they will instill instill this fear of hell you will lose your social your social support system that family that would bring food over when you were sick is gone because you have now decided that you don't believe this anymore so i think the cost people are evaluating the cost that they will incur if they're honest with themselves when it comes to abandoning certain beliefs and some institutions set that bar very high so I think it does, I think the bars are different depending on what group you're in, but as far as like challenging views and getting people to question and doubt, it's going to be the same. Love it. Love it. Mikhail, welcome back. Glad that uh, the internet started working over there again. Um, yeah. I was, I was just getting ready to ask Anthony kind of to point us to where people can find out more about him and, and the 501c3 started. Uh, any last questions from you? Yeah. Um, I'd love more details about the religious recovery support. Um, that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, about too, because I think that, that would be a really useful resource for people um, to utilize. Mm -hmm. Recovering from and religion. Loved, you know, it, oh, one, one kind of final thought. I loved um, somebody said on Facebook, it must have been when I was experiencing technical difficulties, but you, you must have mentioned talking about shifting your level of confidence. And so I just love that idea that, that one, giving ourselves permission to to change our thoughts and our beliefs, especially things that we once held as deeply true, can be super empowering. Um, I think that when we when we limit ourselves, um, it it can create a lot of problems within our like our our mental health and and also just within um, social groups. And so, just giving yourself permission to change your mind and shift your confidence is never a bad thing. Absolutely. I mean, we, we, I would love to try to get to the point where we, we, uh, we celebrate people who change their minds and a recent example of this to kind of tie it to the coronavirus thing. Do you remember, I think there was like Dr. Pinsky. I think he had said some things about sort of downplaying the strength of this virus. And then I think a few days later, after a huge backlash, he reversed, he apologized. And I think people, a lot of people jumped on him, but, and he probably did some harm initially. Like I'm, I'm not glossing over that, but the fact that he acknowledged that he made a mistake and he's shifting in his position is tearing him down. Really, the best thing for that, like, shouldn't we sort of acknowledge that and say that was probably a difficult thing for him to do, and um, I can commend him for that. So I, I'd like to see us shifting more towards acknowledging when people change their minds and admit that maybe they were mistaken on something, and they can adequately explain what changed their mind. And then, um, as far as um, recovering from religion, it's a great organization. If I wasn't I mean, I, I'm involved in RFR as a volunteer. I've been volunteering for them for five years because I wanted to make sure that there was something on the other side of the conversations when I engage with theists particularly. Where do they go when they start to doubt? What resources are out there for them? And recovering from religion is a great resource. People who are questioning their faith can go and call them and they will engage with you. And um, they don't, they don't, they're not there to keep instilling doubt in you or, or challenging your views. They will, though, ask you Socratic questions. They will ask SE-related questions to figure out what resource would best fit you. Uh, what do you think is the best solution for you? Why do you think that that's the case? So it's a really good organization that's there. And I can introduce you to people who run that organization if you're interested. I think it could be really useful for people to understand that that's out there. That might be what those, those organizations that Bill mentioned 
that set that cost very high, it might it might um, make it a little bit easier for people to take action on their doubt if they know that there are groups out there like that. Yeah, yeah. So so often you feel like you're the only person in the room who's thinking this way, and, and hence the social cost seems insurmountable. Um, yeah. So I just want to say, and then I want to ask you the question. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, listening to you talk and listening to all the things you're involved in and all the time you spend in it and watching you answer questions as I'm poking and saying like religion, this and religion, a and religion B, and you keep going like, well, these are ways to question all kinds of beliefs. And I can tell you're a good human being. And I can tell that your, your motives are sincere. And yes, I think like, let's be honest. Like you think if we all critic, if we critically think about our beliefs, we're going to start deconstructing some of the absurdities. And some of that involves leaving religion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But your your motives seem to be as healthy and as genuine as one can have as they're, as they're going about the task of helping people think critically about the beliefs in their world. Um, so with that said, I, I say thank you for who you are and what you're doing. But I want you to point then, point people to where they can find out more about the charity that you've just started, uh, where people can find you on YouTube, and any other resources where people, if they go like, I want to know more about street epistemology, where they can go to find out. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. To that point, um, I'm glad that you do see it that way because I try to present it that way because that's really how I do feel about it. I think that this approach can really help all of us uh, try to figure out if our confidence is justified. And I've given talks on street epistemology where it was a mix of um, students from the Secular Student Alliance and students from a Christian apologetics group. And there were um, ad- there were grown adults, uh, older people there, 40s, 50-year-olds, who were also involved in these groups. And um, a woman from the the Christian side came up after my talk and said, you know, I listened very intently to everything that you said, like this last hour that you talked. There was nothing that you said that I disagreed with. <laughs> and that was really a really great thing to hear from this person. This was a this was a God believer. Um, but yeah, so this, this is really a useful tool, it seems. And uh, there are resources out there. Probably the best place that you can go initially would be to streetepistemology.com. And you can find links to people. I think we even have like the video of the month at the top and a description of what street epistemology is, a link to communities where there are groups on Facebook and and, uh, Reddit and Discord, and I'm probably missing a few, where uh, people love this approach or they're worried about it or whatever, anything in between. They're talking about it. They're learning about it. They're they're practicing it. And it's really catching on. So I would just recommend go to the website. And then you can even find a link to the nonprofit that we started uh, called Street Epistemology International. It's cool. When I, um, I looked up this morning so I could understand what the definition of epistemo- epistemology was. And um, it said like Aristotle and Rene Descartes and some of those people, Plato, um, were like the original epistemologists. And so that was fascinating to me. Mm. Yeah, I think this was originated from, uh, well, the, 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 the fellow that came up with it uh, when he wrote his first book, he's a philosophy professor and he's familiar with the Socratic method. And he's also familiar with motivational interviewing. He has a family member who does that. And I think it was the confluence of that that resulted in street epistemology. And then he put it out there and people started going out and doing videos. And and now, like I mentioned, experts in different disciplines are reaching out and saying, we're using this tool. So it's it's really cool to see how it's expanded. And I can't wait to see where it goes from here. Yeah, I'd love to stay in touch as I learn more. Yeah. I, I ordered that book um, and I want to see how it works in my practice. Yeah, absolutely. Let me know. Or at the very least, join one of the groups that are out there and and lurk or post something like, hey, I, I have a person coming in and they said this and I wasn't exactly sure where to go. Do you have any advice? You'll get some, probably get some really good advice there. Awesome. Anthony, thanks so much for your time today. Um, appreciate who you are and what you're doing and um, just enjoyed this conversation. It was so good. Me too. Uh, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it. And I, I know, I know some people were like, Hey, why didn't you give us an example of how street epistemology works? You've done that a million times. People can find that. Yeah. I, I wanted to give us a chance to ask you questions that nobody's asked you before and to get a feel for you and, and some of the ways in which you like, for instance, deconstructed your own, your own faith journey. Um, but thanks again for the time. And I hope you have an awesome weekend, my friend. Thank you very much for having me on. It's, it's one of my favorite topics and uh, I'm, I'm glad that you're taking an interest in it. I hope it keeps uh, growing and that snowball keeps rolling. Cool. I'll share the links to your work on the episode notes for the uh, for the podcast apps and uh, just appreciate all you do. We're going to let you go. And then Mikel and I will pick up some closing thoughts and uh, and uh, talk to the listeners for a moment. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me on. Really enjoyed talking to you both. Have a great day. You too. See ya. Mikel, what do you think? 
That was awesome. It just is fascinating that this can be applied to anything, you know, religious or non-religious topics, that it's not, it's not necessarily a way to convince people one way or another, but a way of getting them to start asking um, important questions to start critically thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I've learning to think critically about the things you are certain of is really, man, it's a skill and it takes time. And um, I like to think that everything I believe today is true. And I like how Anthony put it more on a confidence scale right? because now I can go like, Oh, well I'm, I'm confident, but not like certain. And then I can allow my confidence to shift. Um, I, I think it's a better way to approach life. And I like how he leaves the door open for other conclusions to, to sway him. Yeah. I loved when he was talking about how, um, you know, in, in some of his interviews, he, he points to people having really reasons and him even saying, Hmm, I'm going to have to investigate that. I'm going to have to research that, or I'm going to have to think about that. That may, they've got some good points there. It's, it's, I loved that aspect of um, him being able to converse with other people that he doesn't, what I loved is that he doesn't have, 100% 100% certainty, even in his own thoughts and ideas that he allows room for himself to have some doubt. Yeah. Do you have a joke for us this week, Mikkel? No, I didn't look a joke up. I'll, I'll tell you a little funny thing. I'm on a little hike last night with my wife. And uh, my wife, I, I'm, I'm in my own little world thinking about things. And my wife says, look, there's an alligator. And she was pointing at a rock formation that looked like an alligator. But you know how when you're off in your own headspace and you th- you're thinking about things literally, there was there was a one second moment where I thought, prepare yourself, you're going to encounter an alligator. And I look over to the side of the path and it's I'm adorable. literally in my head going, where's the alligator? I'm about to have to confront an alligator. And if... When your brain, like there are moments in our life where we literally are, it's all fiction, but we're literally in our heads preparing ourselves to combat the worst thing imaginable. And let's be honest, if an alligator comes out of the weeds and there's no, by the way, there's no fucking alligators in Southern Utah, (laughs) but, but you know, I'm in, I'm in that headspace and uh, the cloud. (laughs) So (laughs) in my head for literally a second and a half, I'm like, okay, if, 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 when this alligator comes out. I'm going to have to confront this alligator with a vest. <laughs> yeah. The investigator. <laughs> um, you're, if you fight an alligator, you're going to lose, <laughs> you're going to lose and you're just, but you still got to fight, right? You got, you got to take out an eye or whatever, but um, with what? Any, with, what are you going to take an eye out with Bill? So when I'm like, where my wife's like, no, 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 dude, <laughs> like there's a rock that looks like an alligator. There's no she, alligators in Southern Utah. She said it was a cloud. Yeah, it was a cloud. Okay. There she goes. <laughs> that makes there it she funnier. is. That it makes was a cloud. Funnier. So maybe see a rock. Yeah. But a cloud bill. Context is everything. <laughs> everything. <laughs> That's funny. You yeah. didn't notice my hair. Hey, I did notice your hair. I thought it looked awesome. Thanks. But I just, yeah, I just, in the middle of introducing Anthony, I, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to go some other direction and start talking about your hair for 10 minutes, but I like it. I love the way it looks. I love the style and I love the color. And, and I think what you're pointing at is for listeners to know this, not only am I turned on when people cry, but I like the color purple. I'm not turned on by the color purple, by the way, but I like the color purple. It's my favorite color. So here I am revealing something else about me. Um, I like the color purple. Um, and yeah, and you, and you, I've seen your hair purple before. It's a good look for you. I, I like it. Thanks. I I felt like it was a really good time since I'm self quarantined and not not working my regular job. Um, if it turned out horrible, no one's going to see it for a couple of weeks except on the podcast and whatevs. Yeah, yeah. Um, Pablo says I could flee from the alligator. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know how fast alligators run. I don't think they run that fast. Uh, in my head, you, don't you run have that to fast either. You have to grab his mouth and hold it shut. He can't. He can't open it easily, but he can, he can chomp down hard. So I don't know. That's scary. I'm scared. Um, what are the thoughts you got? Anything else? Um, no, Kelsey and I are watching a show called alone, which is really fascinating. I think you, you told us about it. it. Oh, I got to check it out alone. Yeah. They send people into the wilderness, wilderness by themselves, by themselves. It's a, to record it's a, themselves. Like a wilderness survival show. Um, our kids are loving it and it's interesting to see, um, 
people's thought process and because they have no one else to talk to. So they're basically talking to themselves, to the camera that they have to record everything. And, and we just finished um, the season where um, it's called Alone Redemption. So people that were on the show, like the previous seasons, then come back for a second opportunity. And it's so fascinating to see their, their thought process the second time around. Um, and then I'm reading a new book called Untamed by Untamed. Glenn Doyle. It's mm. so good. Mm. Yeah, I love it. I love that we're just on this side of life. We're just always learning, wanting new things, wanting to see what changes mind, see what, how can I be a a better, healthier, more well-rounded adult? I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, Last night I fell in love with a reggae group called Dirty Heads. Oh, you've not heard them before? Not much. And maybe not at all. um, Only in passing, maybe. And, And so today... Our closing song, and I actually have it queued up here to play on the broadcast. I just want to make sure when I start to play it that it is playing sound and you can hear it. Okay, which so Dirty please, Heads song? Dirty Heads, Red Lights. And oh, I've not heard that one. It, oh, if you listen, there's a certain style I like where they're they're rapping, but it's a unique it's a unique style of rapping, um, and it's reggae. Uh, it's they're really good, and I just just in the last twenty four hours have fallen like deeply in love. Like I want to propose to them. Um, <laughs> it is that good. Yeah. Um, so if you're ready, Mikkel, then let's do uh, dirty heads. Dirty heads. Coming, What's that? To, they're coming to Reggae Rise Up, which got po- postponed until October. Yeah, and so I'm excited. I Me I will too. be at Reggae Rise Up um, in Vegas whenever it happens. It's supposed to happen in is it August? October, October 24th. Okay. So October 24th. On your calendar. Yeah. Reggae rise up. I'm definitely going to be there. Uh, I'm so excited. This it's, I've never been, I've been to like outdoor country concerts at like, oh, this is way better. I've never been to a real concert. What? Um, never. So this will be, whenever this happens, this will be my first one and it will be an awesome way to celebrate uh, this, this thing being at least over or right. past it's the, over. past the curve. Right. Yeah. Um, so here it is. Dirty heads, red lights. Uh, listeners, check us out at almostawakened.org. Um, before you exit, Mikkel, make sure that you verify that you do hear sound. <laughs> and everybody else, check us out. If you can, donate to the podcast. Uh, I just I just Keep love these your- conversations. I love the chance to give people a new thing to think about. Same. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.